Welcome to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. I'm Pim Fox, along with my co-host, Lisa Abramowitz. Each day, we bring you the most important, noteworthy, and useful interviews for you and your money, whether you're at the grocery store or the trading floor. Find the Bloomberg PL Podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. Peter Krauss led Alliance Bernstein through the heart of the financial crisis. He was chairman and CEO of the big asset management firm from 2008 through last year. And now he is starting his own firm. Uh, we are broadcasting live from Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studios. And Peter Krauss joins us right here. Peter, thank you so much for being here. Thanks, you, Lisa, for having me. All right. So you are founding a new firm. And why? Good question. It is a new firm. Uh, what the main reason that I think the new firm is exciting is that we are trying to align the revenue model of the firm with the client's objectives. And what I found in time, in my experience in the industry is that although we all are here to serve clients, almost all firms' revenue models are fixed fees. So the client pays whether or not the manager performs. And Aperture is distinctly different in that sense. The client only pays more than the passive fee if we perform. What is the hurdle rate? The hurdle rates are different for different products. So it would depend upon the investment services that we have. But let's just take an example. In a simple equity fund, let's say it's US large cap equities, the hurdle rate would be the Standard & Poor's Index. Easily identifiable, recognizable by all. Okay, so let's say that this does gain steam. Would fees be a, a lot larger once you hit that threshold? Well, actually, you have to earn the S&P return in order to be paid any fee at all. So in other words, let's just say the market's up 10%. That's the S&P. If the manager's performance is 10%, they're paid exactly no performance fee and only their base fee. So here's what I'm wondering. When you talk about outperformance, it depends what index you're looking at. It, it also depends what time frame you're looking at. So what is the correct time frame to really judge this? So remember that almost all managers have benchmarks in the, in the fixed fee space, for sure. Uh, and so it's true that each manager has a different benchmark, and benchmarks uh, can be complex. We're attempting to make those benchmarks simple, easy, and recognizable. The time period over which you pay fees is one year. The reason why it's not longer is it's complicated for people to understand fees over more than a year. We actually charge the fee every day, but at the end of the day, we only collect the fee if we actually create performance in the 12-month period in which the client is invested. Uh, the, uh, the new company, Aperture, uh, is it going to compete against more storied names like Goldman Sachs, or is this designed to go and try to peel away money from other, let's say, hedge funds or specific uh, investment strategies? We actually think that we're attempting to disrupt all of those, not just Goldman Sachs, not just a hedge fund, not just T. Rowe Price, not just Fidelity, but all the above. Because what we're trying to bring to the client is outstanding returns, returns over a benchmark. At the end of the day, clients can buy beta or the market exposure for cheap prices. We know that. And we think that they should go and do that. What clients can't get is return in excess of the market. 
we're actually trying to provide that. Okay, so what do you think happens to all the big asset managers if they don't adopt fee structures like this? I think this is a this is a industry that plays out over a long period of time. People don't move their money around, you know, haphazardly. But over long periods, you know, 10 to 15 years, I believe that the amount of money that will be followed by this performance-linked structure will be very significant in the trillions. And you would look at me and say, well, how could that possibly be? But if you go back to 1993, when ETFs started, if I had said to you 20-plus years later, ETFs are going to account for almost 50% of the marketplace, you would have thought I was crazy. I'm just struck by the infrastructure of an asset management of an asset management firm. I mean, this is not inexpensive. How do you maintain that with the structure when it's really hard to outperform unless you are investing in less liquid assets? I mean, if you're tied to broader markets, it's chance. Yeah, it's hard to outperform whether you're invested in liquid markets or illiquid or illiquid assets. Don't don't make don't make the mistake that illiquid assets are easy to create performance from too. Look, at the end of the day, we're running a, uh, a asset management firm that's disrupting on three different levels. It's disrupting on the revenue level, it's disrupting on the distribution level, and it's disrupting on the cost structure. We've built a cost structure that essentially outsources virtually all the things that most firms would do internally. Most firms do them internally because it's their legacy. We have the benefit of building a firm today and given the cloud structure in the world and the available technology, we can replicate what most firms do for millions and millions of dollars for far, far less. So our cost structure is structurally competitive relative to anybody else. We actually have a structural benefit that others can't take advantage of. What are your thoughts about starting Aperture Investors at a time when, if you look at the S&P 500, we're at 29.24. We've got a record for the Dow at 26.623. You're looking at performance that's pretty good and a lot of people are starting to think maybe this is the time to lighten up on stocks some 66 i started thinking about investing believe it or not when i was maybe 12 or 13 years old over that time period doesn't take anybody you know smart to realize that equities have gone up over time people are investing for their lives they're investing for their savings market timing is interesting to talk about but not interesting as an investment thesis so Aperture is here for the long run. We expect to be in business for many, many years, tens of years. And our job is to produce alpha, whether the market's going down or the market's going up. Is it hard for you to recruit potential investment managers with a fee structure like this, especially since their compensation is so closely tied to outperformance? It's a great question. It's really the key question, actually. So I've interviewed over almost 100 people can't keep count. It's somewhere over 75, but I think it's up to 100. Um, And I think that people fall into two categories. There are uh, those portfolio managers who grew up in a fixed fee world who look at this and go, well, why would I go to a performance-based world when I get paid whether or not I perform? And my view of that is I don't even want to hire them because that's just not the person I want. The person I want is somebody that believes they can perform, has a history of performing, understands how to take risk, and is willing to be paid on the basis of that performance. Because there are two important things to that. One is they're risk takers. And at the end of the day, you want to invest with a risk taker. You can't make money if the person doesn't take risk. And two is they're willing to cap their capacity. Because capacity is the main issue in the, comp- in the industry. Any names you can share who have joined the team? No, I, I mean, it'll be public over time, but 
I, I think we're a team. Rhymes so I'm like. Not gonna, I'm sorry? Rhymes like. Rhymes like. Meg Moan. <laughs> but we're a team and we're going to be a team. All right. We're going to leave it there. Thanks very much for coming in. Peter Krause is the founder and financial partner for Aperture Investors. They're looking to reshape the fee structure for money managers. Thanks very much for coming in and sharing your thoughts with us. Joining us now is Lenann Nguyen. She's an FX reporter for Bloomberg News. Lenann, thank you so much for being with us. You know, I have to think it is strange that the dollar is weakening at a time when Treasury yields are grinding higher. Doesn't this go against the trend that we've seen recently? It certainly does, Lisa, and that's the really interesting thing. We've seen positioning in the FX market is max bullish right now. People are piling into long positions. It's the third most crowded trade, according to Bank of America's fund manager survey. And yet, I'm hearing a lot of people talking about the dollar being a, a sell. Um, you know, we, we talked to BNP Paribas Asset Management. They think the dollar could plunge 10% in the next six to nine months. So what we're looking at is the market saying, Fed's over. We're over it. We know what's happening there. The U.S. economy is doing well. What's next? Well, just taking a look at the performance of the dollar today, 132.80 against the pound sterling. Perhaps that's in response to the comments from Donald Tusk of the European Union about ongoing negotiations. And also taking a look at the dollar versus the Canadian loonie, 128. The dollar is weakening. Yeah, and I think with those two stories, particularly with Canada and the pound, we have a lot of idiosyncratic political risk and trade risk when it comes to NAFTA. So the dollar has definitely gotten a bid in the last few weeks, months because of trade problems. But I think a lot of the people that I'm looking at uh, on the buy side who are longer term thinkers think, okay, the trade stuff is just noise. It will eventually be resolved. And what's really important is the fundamental drivers, which is U.S. central bank is already moving, which which central banks are next and uh, who is going to catch up to the U.S. in terms of that uh, monetary policy convergence. So, Dave, come on in here. If BNP uh, Pariba analysts are correct and others that the greenback could decline, could appreciate about 10% in the upcoming year, what does that mean for U.S. equities? I mean, that's kind of almost a tailwind, no? Yeah, I mean, you've sort of seen the dollar pop up in a lot of companies' results as as something to be concerned about. I mean, let's face it, you know, if you've got a higher dollar, then all those overseas earnings just don't count so much when you bring them back home, if only for the sake of the financial statements. And, you know, to the extent that the companies are trying to sell overseas, I mean, it, it becomes an issue as well. So it has the potential to be that. I mean, then again, I'm looking at the Bloomberg dollar index, and it's sort of sitting in the range. It's been the last few months at the bottom of the range, but it's not like we've had the kind of really substantial move lower that would suggest, that at least for the moment, that things are changing in a meaningful way for U.S. companies. And just to your point, Lisa, I mean, a company like Coca-Cola, which derives more than half of its revenue from outside the United States, they would be affected by any of those big moves in U.S. dollar, right? Yes, exactly. And so maybe this becomes, uh, you know, a, a boon uh, if the dollar does start to weaken. Uh, we saw that when the Fed was tightening rates that, um, you know, everyone was really worried about this tightening of financial conditions. The dollar was doing a lot of the tightening for the Fed. So maybe we're going in reverse this time. I'm confused because with Treasury yields now, 10-year yields climbing above 3%, you're getting real return on everything from three-month T-bills out through the 30-year Treasury. I'm just trying to understand why are we not seeing more foreign investors flood back into the U.S., giving more of a bid to the dollar. I mean, I understand about the Fed, but what about the actual yields? 
I think it's again we're we're looking at the two, 2017 story again, which is that people just uh, in the FX market don't see the U.S. as that appealing anymore because we've maxed out. I think the the two markets are definitely dislocated for sure. Um, and in foreign exchange, people say this is as good as it gets in the U.S. What's next? As good as it gets, that seems to be uh, not resonating at all with stock traders today as no. we hit new highs. So people seem to think that there's a lot more good ahead uh, in equities, although uh, currencies can sometimes sometimes have a little bit more of a finger on the pulse, a different pulse perhaps. Dave Wilson, Bloomberg Stocks editor, columnist, and blogger at M Live Go on the Bloomberg, and Lenan Nguyen, who covers FX for us here at Bloomberg News. And Pim, I got to say, I'm having trouble reconciling higher yields with a weaker dollar. It's something that is not logical. Oh, to you're me. trying to make sense of well, no, it just it goes oh against goodness. some recent trends that we've seen, and it just it's an interesting dynamic. It'll be interesting to see whether it holds. Right now, we want to shift the focus to China. Overnight, there were reports that China is considering cutting tariffs on incoming goods, a seeming, I don't know, olive branch to the rest of the world saying that we're going to lower our high tariff rates a little bit in order to be a leader in trade. Joining us now, Tom Orlick, chief economist for Bloomberg Economics, coming to us from Washington, D.C. Tom, this seems to go against what we had been seeing. It does seem to break the vibe between the U.S. and China, where it was sort of an escalating tariff off. How big of a deal is this? I think we need to wait for the details. Um, if it's a very significant cut in tariffs, um, then clearly this is going to be big news. Um, if we're just talking about a fraction of a percent or a couple of percent off tariffs, uh, I think it's not going to really move the dial. Um, it seems to be an indication that China wants to de-escalate this situation. Um, the U.S. went with 200 tariffs on $200 billion in goods. China responded with tariffs on just $60 billion. The U.S. set tariffs at 10% and said they were going to 25 China came in at a lower level. And now this move to offer a general concession on tariffs um, uh, worldwide um, seems to me an indication that China is trying to de-escalate. What about the import tax that China might impose more generally, what would that do to the Chinese economy? So the way that China will present this um, is part of a longer-term reform and opening strategy. Um, of course, uh, Donald Trump has his prestige. Uh, in China, Xi Jinping has his prestige. Um, the last thing that China's government wants to do is to be perceived as making concessions um, to the U.S. Uh, so this will be presented as part of a longer-term reform and opening strategy, um, and it will have, uh, to your question, Pim, um, that positive impact in terms of raising consumption, uh, in terms of dealing with China, some of China's economic imbalances. Uh, and so the hope in Beijing will be at the same time as taking some of the heat out of the trade trade dispute, it's also a longer-term positive for China's development. So, Tom, this was my big question when I read the news this morning. I was wondering, will China lower tariffs on U.S. goods alongside others that they import, especially considering the fact that they've got no plans to dial back their retaliatory tariffs that they said are going to go into effect on September 24th in tandem with the additional U.S. tariffs on Chinese goods? 
Right. Um, that's an important question. I don't think we have perfect clarity on it yet. We don't have the details from the Chinese side. Um, my initial take, though, is that this reduction in tariffs will be worldwide. It will apply to the U.S., it will apply to Europe, it will apply to everybody. Um, so the Chinese are making their domestic market more attractive uh, to foreign firms. At the same time, those punitive tariffs on U.S. firms, um, which the Chinese have said they will impose in retaliation for U.S. tariffs on Chinese firms, will be in place. So the whole market will look more attractive to foreign firms, but Chinese, but U.S. firms will face this additional punitive tariff. Um, I think the the uh, the logic of that for Beijing is that they hope to turn U.S. corporates into lobbyists on their behalf. Because the U.S. corporates will see, oh, the Europeans, the Canadians, the Japanese, they're all going into the Chinese market on these new favorable terms. We can't get in because we're faced with these punitive additional tariffs. Let's go to D.C. Let's encourage the Trump administration to uh, call a truce, maybe walk back some of the uh, some of the tariffs they've introduced. Tom, just quickly here, if this is all going to happen, what happens to the Chinese currency? I mean, hasn't it been falling in value and doesn't that make then Chinese products you know, more competitive? So China has allowed the yuan to depreciate somewhat over the course of 2018. Uh, there certainly hasn't been an extreme drop in the currency. Uh, the fear for China, if we saw a big drop, would be we'd be back to the world of capital outflows uh, and concerns about financial stability. Um, I think if we see this cut in tariffs and that reduces the tensions in the trade war, uh, then that's going to reduce the need for yuan depreciation uh, as a kind of competitiveness offset. I do want to just remind you, we are awaiting law enforcement comments on multiple victims uh, having been shot in Maryland. We will bring you those when we get them. Tom, you know, you were talking about how China wants to turn U.S. corporations into lobbyists to get the Trump administration to back away from this trade escalation. But so far, they have been lobbyists and they have failed. What makes China confident that perhaps uh, the Trump administration would listen to corporate pushback when it really hasn't worked so far. Yeah, I think that's a, that's a key point. Uh, and my expectation at the start of the year was that we were going to have much more vigorous corporate pushback from the U.S. business lobby, and that was going to be a more significant factor in uh, changing the changing the view on the Trump administration. Uh, clearly, that hasn't happened so far. Um, we'll see what the extent of the tariff cut that China is offering is. Um, but clearly, if it's a very significant tariff cut, if it significantly increases the appeal um, of doing business in China, um, then you would expect those business lobby voices in the U.S. to get that little bit louder. Um, and of course, I don't have a crystal ball into Beijing. I don't know what the, the government's uh, internal thinking is. Um, but the hope, I think, would be that a louder voice from the U.S. business lobby uh, would make it more difficult for the Trump administration to proceed uh, with aggressive tariffs. Does this also have an impact on uh, other countries in Asia that maybe have assumed some of the manufacturing uh, work that has been too expensive to do in China? Right. So I think um, countries like Vietnam, countries like the Philippines, countries like Bangladesh, I mean, we're already seeing a lot of export business, low value added export business moving from China to those countries uh, because they are cheaper now. 
Um, and this U.S.-China trade war, I mean, it could only accelerate that process, right? If China's getting more expensive in terms of labor, in terms of exchange rate, in terms of all the cost of production, and then you have tariffs on top of that, then all the corporations are going to think, okay, my next factory is going to be in Southeast Asia. Now, if China reduces its tariffs and dials down the tension in the trade war, um, clearly that the pressure for that exodus of manufacturing activity will be that bit less. So one thing that I'm struck by is we were speaking with Leland Miller of China Beige Book International uh, earlier in the week, and he was saying that on the ground, it seems like manufacturing is slowing in China, despite some of the data that we're getting from official sources there. And I just am wondering if you do sort of reduce the barrier to imports in China at a time when you're already seeing a slowdown in manufacturing, how much could this actually hurt China's economy? I mean, that's an interesting question. Um, clearly, if you import more manufactured goods, then you have less need to import, you have less need to produce manufactured goods uh, at home. At the same time, um, tariffs are not the only factor determining where manufacturing activity takes place. Um, the supply chains are in China, the infrastructure is in China. These things do not move quickly or move overnight. Um, I think the idea that the Chinese government has is probably not so much, oh, we're going to get more imported manufacturing goods and that's going to be bad for our factories at home, but rather we've got lots of consumers They've got a demand for goods that are produced globally. Um, we're going to ramp up consumption uh, by reducing import barriers and opening the door to more U.S. cars, more Japanese cars, uh, more of those kind of high-end goods that Chinese consumers now want but are not being produced at home. I want to thank you very much for spending time with us. Tom Orlick is chief economist for Bloomberg Economics, uh, talking about the effects of the drawn-out U.S.-China trade war and what that means not only for consumers in the United States but also for the uh, Chinese economy. So Amazon wants to run our world in every which way, whether it's in our homes, whether it's in our stores, whether it's the music we listen to or the movies we watch. The latest, they are planning to open 3,000 Go stores by 2021. Shira Ovide, Bloomberg Opinion columnist covering all things tech. What does an Amazon convenience store look like? Well, what they look like now, Amazon has a handful of these cashierless, more or less convenience stores um, th that they started a couple years ago in their hometown of Seattle. And they look like a conventional convenience store with prepared foods and a handful of select um, uh, packaged food items, except there are no cashiers. You kind of walk in with your smartphone that has a special app on it. Uh, you pluck whatever you want off the shelves and you walk out uh, and your app is automatically figures out what you bought and charges you for it. Now, I don't know, you know, our colleague Spencer Sopa reported this story yesterday about the plan to open as many as 3,000 of these cashierless stores. In addition to the number, which is quite stunning, the 
the other surprising thing was maybe they won't be convenience stores. Maybe they will be more like cashierless, uh, you know, these kind of sandwich joints that we see all over our neighborhood here in Manhattan, more like places where you go to pick up a sandwich or a salad or some other prepared food. So it feels almost like it's in competition with, you know, Pret-a-Manger or Chipotle or these other um, kind of lunch joints that we see in lots of cities. Do we have any idea about the back the back end of all this, the kitchen preparation, who's going to yep. do all that work? And is that coming from Whole Foods, for example? I mean, look, the irony of any cashierless store is that it requires an enormous amount of manpower behind the scenes, right? So in addition to the people who have to prepare the food, you have people who stock the shelves, you have people who have to drive food from a centralized kitchen um, or or warehouse to the store. Uh, you you got to restock shelves. You got to have security so people aren't shoplifting things. Essentially, there are people required even for something that is billed as cashierless. You know, Spencer's store yesterday reported quite an interesting figure that the original ghost store in Seattle required a million dollars just for the technology hardware. And that doesn't account for all the other costs to set up and operate that store. Uh, so obviously, a million dollars plus per store does not scale if you're talking about something on the order of 3,000 stores. Jeff Bezos is no dope. What's his plan here? <laughs> what's the what's the big ka-ching? Oh, okay. So the look, the big prize here is Americans and people around the world, they spend huge chunks of their household budget every month on groceries, on convenience stores, and on eating out. And if Amazon can pluck uh, you know, good share of e- each of those pools of household spending, that's an enormous market for Amazon, particularly in grocery, but not exclusively. So that is really the big prize here, is accessing a huge pool of consumer spending. Do you know that Amazon offers something called Amazon Cloud Cam for the Alexa smart home? It's a security camera that has two-way audio, night vision, and HD resolution. Indeed. Yes. It's one of many of their uh, Alexa powered devices. Yes. Well, that's where I was going with this because I believe there's set to be an announcement having to do with devices. And I don't know whether it's going to be the Echo Look, the Echo Show, the Echo Spot, the Alexa, the Fire TV. My goodness. Yes, it's so as you said, in a couple of hours, Amazon is hosting this event in Seattle where they're going to apparently talk about the next wave of the, the devices they put out with this Alexa kind of smart brain baked in. Um, as you point out, they do have an, a pretty big range of these Alexa-powered Amazon devices already. And I think, although there are no hard sales figures, it feels like some of those Alexa-powered devices have been successful, like the Echo Dot, which is the kind of small form version of the original Echo voice-powered speaker. And some of the Alexa-powered devices that Amazon has released um, haven't been as successful. So I think it's fair to think that Amazon is kind of throwing spaghetti at the wall to see what sticks when it comes to their device strategy. And maybe that's not a bad idea, right? If you're a company of Amazon's size, let's do essentially, you know, experiments in the real world instead of, you know, in a laboratory. But there's no cashier when you buy that spaghetti before you throw it at the wall. Interesting. Well, um, I suppose, yeah, you can buy those Amazon devices on Amazon. No people required. Also at Whole Foods stores where there are cashiers. It uh, it just gets better and better, doesn't it? I will say, I go to Whole Foods. I full disclosure on an Amazon.prime customer. Yep. But I haven't signed on 
for the benefit at Whole Foods because it just seems onerous and yet another password. I don't know. I just am not seeing the crossover so much. You get a discount. I know. Yeah. It <laughs> well, could we'll actually cost less. I know, but then it's time. Time is money. Anyway, Shira Oviday, Bloomberg Opinion Columnist. Thank you so much for being with us. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg PL Podcast. You can subscribe and listen to interviews at Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whatever podcast platform you prefer. I'm Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Pim Fox. I'm on Twitter at Lisa Abramowitz1. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.